Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't posted anything for a little bit, but uh, know that I haven't been just entirely slacking off, been thinking about all kinds of things. New material will be coming very soon, and uh, I'll be announcing that shortly. So hopefully some material that you people will enjoy. Um, before I get into that, though, I did want to mention that a good friend of mine, Saul El Monsef, has a new novel up that you can hear on YouTube. It's got beautiful illustration, beautifully read with music. It's called Benghazi, and I think I'll put a link below. And if you want to check that out, you can just click over and listen to it. It's uh, first part of it is up, but it's just I think I think you might really enjoy it. I, I know I did, so just wanted to pass that along. <clears throat> um, tonight, I want to ask a question and explore a question, reflect on it, that I think is at the heart of a lot of what is going on um, in our culture at the moment. I mean, again, I've mentioned this before, that the stressors come along. Um, we have several of them um, going on in our community or in our culture at the moment, and it exposes certain fault lines and uh, deep uh, patterns of thinking that are often laid down. We think of them as being contemporary issues, but they've often been laid down very, very far in the past. And, and one that keeps returning to me now is a simple question is, you know, are people fundamentally uh, good or fundamentally worthwhile just because they exist? Or um, do people have to do certain things or be certain ways to actually be considered potentially uh, valuable, worthwhile, or good? <clears throat> this seems like an odd question because I think our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, of course people are worthwhile. And it's like, ah, you know, be careful. One of the great parts of Confucianism uh, in the Chinese tradition is that it, it, one of its core theories is that basically human beings want to be good and that um, that to do good, they just need help, right? That that's, They consider it sort of like growing a crop or, or taking care of a plant. If you nurture people and put them in an environment which helps them to cultivate their native goodness, then they will be good. But if they're in an environment that stunts them or damages them in some ways, then people who would otherwise be good will do um, things that are, are viewed by culture individuals as bad. And so, but their, their core belief is that fundamentally human beings on average, most people are, are basically decent and hence date basically valuable, right? That the decent human beings have value. Um, Greeks uh, argued something similar, both <clears throat> Aristotle and uh, Plato, you know, basically in different ways, actually in some similar ways as well, but they both argued that, look, no one knowingly does wrong because wrong harms you. And so it's only ignorance that leads people to do evil or unhelpful or unfortunate actions. Um, and so they viewed people as being ignorant, but ignorance is simply something that can be redressed, right? It can be with education or, again, a good environment or a helpful upbringing, well, that will then allow them to understand the world better, and then they wouldn't make the kinds of errors of judgment that leave them to do evil things, <clears throat> or at least the people who matter. Now, sometimes there's an argument about that. So this seems like a, a, a crazy sort of background, but right now I believe we're leaning culture, and of course this always comes in mixes, but we're leaning culturally more towards this notion that people are flawed and wrong and that they need help or fixing for them to be good and or valuable, or even potentially good. Now, that tradition comes to us in the West most strongly from Christianity, which argues um, in, in one of its very influential forms, 
or in several of its very influential forms, that people are fundamentally flawed, original sin, fall from grace, and only through the intervention of uh, divine power, Jesus or God, depending on where you are and what your different version of this is, um, can you hope to even potentially be de- redeemable, right? Hence, hence Jesus is often referred to as the Redeemer. You can't redeem yourself. You're so fallen, you're so broken, you're so awful. There's really nothing you can do for yourself. You can only hope um, by the often this is through grace or through prayer or, you know, again, many debates in different Christian groups about how this goes takes place. But basically, you need outside intervention to make yourself good, Um and valuable. And what this means, though, is that people are basically not good in and of themselves, that just a person on their own in their normal, natural, native state is bad. Then you had someone like Rousseau, you know, people always talk, you know, it's easy to make fun of Rousseau with his, you know, noble savage. But what he meant was that <clears throat> no human beings in their native element, in their natural environment, are noble, which is to say good and valuable, and that is elements of civilization that have corrupted us. This is a really central attack on the notion of original sin um, and the notion that everybody has fallen and damaged and corrupt. And so, you know, Rousseau is rolling this argument out um, to try and redress what he sees as the demeaning of the native nobility of mankind. So, so Anyway, this, this argument has been going on for centuries and centuries across many different civilizations, but it comes back to this basic question is, are people fundamentally good or valuable, you know, depending how you want to think about it, or are they fundamentally flawed and damaged and worthless and they need to do something or achieve something or have a special status to make them um, worthwhile? Uh, Aristotle, for instance, famously argued that Certain people are just, slaves are just inferior. They're born inferior. That's the way they are. Um, and that that notion meant that for the elevated classes, certain people are good, but certain other people are just necessarily bad. And those people are slaves or barbarians, which just means the other people. And that's another popular one. Some groups of people are born good, but most everybody else is fallen. Again, in Christianity, this notion that there's different groups, the good people and the bad people, Um, This was the elect, right? Many different Christian groups, particularly in Protestantism, have this notion of an elect. There are some people who have been chosen by God. Uh, The chosen people, of course, goes back to Judaism, like we are the elect of God. Everybody else is sort of also rands, they're third rate. They've got the wrong gods, but we are the true chosen people. We are the elect, and hence we are necessarily valuable and special in ourselves, whereas everybody else is either second rate or they have to do something to achieve greatness or even worthiness. Um, And that sort of central question that keeps being argued about, now this is not going to be resolved, by the way, this is not one of those things that is going to, one day we're going to wake up and go, oh, well, here's the answer, people are innately valuable, or no, no, people are innately invaluable, it's just that it ebbs and flows in society, that at times, and I think times like this, a time of stress, what I feel like is that there's been this very strong um, rise in the sense that no, people are somehow fundamentally wrong. Um, and that they need serious intervention if they're going to have any hope of being right. And that kind of, uh, I, I think of it as basically anti-human, is that when you think that humans are in their native state uh, damaged or 
flawed, then what you're really arguing is against the human, right? That you have to do something superhuman. You have to rise above your humanity to achieve a state <clears throat> where you have value or worth. Um, and so I think it is a, a very strongly anti-humanist feeling. Um, and what I find interesting about this is this spans this this notion spans uh, political parties. That, you know, we think of everything as being divided along political lines these days. But in this case, it's very clear that this deep rooted sense of, of humans as being uh, worthless or, or, or damaged or, or un irredeemable it cuts right across political parties. It's, bo it's both parties, extremes, middle, you know, it's just, it doesn't track that way because it's so deep into our cultural roots. Uh, and so, you know, it's easy, easy to pull some examples, but a couple of that, that have been jumping out at me lately. One is the notion of of work and how uh, the value of people is tied to work. Now, this is not a new observation, certainly in America, where we think that everybody's worth is tied to their job. But, um, you know, it's sort of taken on this next step. So, you know, there have been a lot of talk about universal basic income or guaranteed jobs for people. And, and usually this comes from the left, right? This is as a progressive or a leftist ideal. Um, but the notion that someone's value is derived from them working and being productive. I mean, this is, I mean, there's a long, multi-century, millennial-long notion of can you be saved by your works? Will God redeem you from your flawed state if you do the right works? Some Christian theologians have said yes. Some Christian theologians have said no. And then there's been a whole range of mixed, complex positions in between. But this has been a hugely wrong-running debate, which is why I find it fascinating that the lefts and progressives somehow suddenly latched onto this and decided that, oh yes, if we provide a world in which everybody can work, that is the best possible world. And in theory, yeah, if you want to create a world where everybody who wants to work can have the opportunity to work. But what about the people who don't want to work, have no interest in being productive, um, just don't care, right? They're disinterested. They would like to do other things besides work or do productive activities. Um, and you see this, I think, most clearly in the defensiveness of our culture around uh, being a parent, particularly being mothers uh, when they have to stay home or choose to stay home and take care of their kids, they keep saying, no, working, being a mother is a job. See, I'm doing something productive. I'm a valuable member of society. The, the, the idea, the like mind-blowing idea that mothers uh, and parents in general, stay-at-home fathers, people who are actually raising, caring for other humans and fostering their growth and hopefully helping them grow to be healthy future humans— need to justify that activity because it's not perceived as being real work is just, again, it's just boggle. It's just, I don't really even know how to respond to it. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I mean, this is, that's crazy, right? But that should be the root definition. Everybody else is wasting time. No matter what you're doing, you're doing something less valuable than nurturing children. I mean, I think that's almost by definition, or maybe a few other things we could think of some other examples, but basically that's really, really, I mean, as a society, there's your core. This is the future. These are the future people of your world, of your country, of your society, of your neighborhood. You want them to be well and healthy. They need nurturing and love. Parents can provide that. There you go. Core of your whole program. And we're like, well, you know, it's as important as a job. Like, no, 
it's more important than jobs. Jobs are stupid and third rate relative to that activity in any sort of sane value system, right? And and so the notion that that this need is like, oh, you know, you, and you can look it up on the internet. They say, well, if this were a paid job, here's all the positions it would be. And here's how many hours it is. And this is the kind of work that's really being done is a signal that what we've decided is that people who aren't productively doing work that is recognized by society are somehow wrong, right? You are not just in and of yourself redeeming yourself as, as your existence, even when in your, what you're doing with your existence is this incredibly important and, you know, natural, human, beautiful undertaking of trying to raise healthy children. So, you know, that's sort of how far we've gone down that road. Now, if you back up one more step and go, well, you know, what if I don't have kids? What if I just want to stay home and not do anything? I want to garden or take care of my plants or stare out the window. Well, you know, should this person be eligible for government support? Should this person get free education, free health care, care for housing, food? Do we say, well, no. No, society has no obligation to individuals who are unwilling to provide for themselves, in which case, again, basically we say, look, if, if, if you don't participate in the system, then no. Now, traditionally, progressives have said, well, we don't want people to starve and go hungry and, you know, we want to care for people, but they've tied that to work, right? Like you, to be worthy of support, you need to participate. And so this becomes this interesting case of saying, well, uh, if you're not working, of course, when anybody who wants to is guaranteed a job, notice this really would make you an outcast. So I think it would be an interesting experiment. It would really, really sort of make you this kind of outlier um, that would, would be sort of separating themselves off from, from society. And so that sort of um, desire to sort of universalize work as some sort of utopic moves uh, is sort of, I think, really anti-human because I'm, I'm pretty sure lots of people, not everybody, I think most people are happy to work. They like to do productive work. They find it um, invigorating and enriches their lives. They feel good about themselves when they do this. So I think for lots of people, I think it is a good idea. But I think for a lot of other people, it's like they just, they're fine. They have no interest in being productive in any way. And should they have to be? This is really one of those fundamental cultural questions that we ra rarely stop to ask. And of course, you know, on the right, this is a very, the rhetoric is much stronger where they say, well, you, if you can't go out in the free market and earn your own job, well, screw you, right? So this is the sort of, uh, you know, well, work and survive and it's a dog eat dog kind of world and, you know, the strongest will rise to the top. And, you know, this, all this rhetoric that we're used to um, associating with sort of uh, the libertarian right or whatever, where the government shouldn't be intervening. And, you know, if you don't, if you can't afford healthcare, then you should just suffer and die. That's fine. Right, that that sort of uh, wing we associate with right wing, but you know when you build a structure around people having to work, it's really a very similar fundamental take on what the, makes a human worthwhile and valuable, but it's expressed in a very different way. So, and that's what's fascinating to me is that in both cases, it's the working that makes you eligible to be considered a good and valuable member and the not working that makes you suspicious, right? And that's that, that sort of, uh, that nexus line there. 
Um, you also see it in other places. And of course, uh, the rhetoric and arguments and debates about uh, racism in our culture, which I think is good to have, um, also raise this because it, it, it raises this vexing or raises many vexing questions, not the least of which is, can a racist be a basically decent person, right? That is, can you be a racist and be an otherwise decent, okay, you know, upstanding member of your society? Or does being a racist make you an irredeemably bad person until in some ways you've addressed this fatal flaw in your character? And this, this is a, and depending on how you feel about that depends on how you feel you need to respond to the issue of racism. One way to look at racism, I think a very, uh, basically a very helpful and insightful way is to see racism as kind of mental illness, Right. So if someone has a mental illness, we don't tend to, we try not to, or or we probably shouldn't think of them as just being horribly flawed. um, And there's nothing you can do for them. And, you know, just, let's just get rid of them, right? Sort of just push them aside, you know, sort of, uh, we're trying to get more respect for and more uh, sympathy for people with with mental illnesses. Um, But that notion of, oh, but if, if, you're, if you view it as a flaw that is integral to the individual, ah, well, now your response is very different. If you say, well, because you're a racist, everything about yourself and your life becomes tainted and hopeless and worthless until you somehow, I don't know, recant or, or prove your worth or renounce your past. And, you know, this, you know, this goes to the history of this is, you know, perfectly clear and not very pleasant where, you know, you have show trials or you have, you know, the conversion of the Jews and then the whole suspicion that there's all these crypto Jews out there who didn't really convert, but only said so because they were afraid of the Inquisition, you know, um, it just goes all the way back because like, oh, is integral to them, therefore they can never actually really not address it, and therefore they're always flawed? Or is this simply one aspect of a larger, more complicated person that would allow them to be, okay, so, you know, yeah, they, they've got racist tendencies, or they say stupid, stupid, ill-informed ideas, but otherwise, you know, they contribute to their community, they are a wonderful neighbors, they're you know, loving parents, they you know, do all this other good stuff, but nah, it's all scratched, right? Where do, when do, when do you, where do you make that line? And this is, this is that tricky notion. Are people completely irredeemable because of a single flaw and can only be saved by whatever the intervention is, right? Is it the grace of God or is it a, a re-education course at work or is it a, a public uh, denunciation or, you know, how does one elevate oneself, right? How, what, what societal process do we go through? Um, and then when you take it from the individual level to the cultural level, you go, okay, what is the difference between a culture being racist, having a tradition of racism, um, having laws that are, are, are biased and unfair or that are applied in biased and unfair manners, which is certainly clear, clearly the history of the United States? Um, how does that track then on to the individual, right? Is, is if you're participating in a system which is flawed, does this make you necessarily flawed, Right. And again, we go back to the Nazi war crimes. Hey, I was just doing my job. Right. It turns out not to be a good excuse for a lot of things. Um, and so God, it opens up all these vexed nexuses, uh, nexuses, nexi, what's the plural of nexus? 
all these interconnections and intersections um, that make you realize that this question of are people fundamentally pretty good and pretty decent and um, we like them uh, generally, but hey, they have their flaws, they're crazy, everybody, we all have our problems and our misperceptions and our misunderstandings and we do stupid things that we wish we hadn't done. Or are, are, are people basically uh, flawed and hopeless and um, there's nothing good about them unless they really start making some efforts to fix themselves, which they're probably not going to be that helpful, but at least they're trying and so we'll give them some points. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's really, uh, it's really troubling. Um, and one way to think about this also, <clears throat> most self-help books, which is why I struggle with the genre, start from the position that there's something wrong with you. And I think people reach out for self-help books because they feel that there's something wrong with them. Um, and it's not that we shouldn't take opportunities to grow and reflect. And I mean, kind of, you know, this kind of what I think of philosophy as being the process of in part, uh, is is this you know self reflection and self understanding and growth and awareness, but um, one of the questions I think is far too rarely asked is: Is there a flaw with the individual? Right? Is there something wrong with me, or is there a misfit between something about me that is just fine, not a problem, but doesn't line up with my culture, with my society? Um, you know, then the problem is not you. The problem is the nexus between you and your society. And if you start trying to, if you see yourself as wrong and your society is right, then what you end up doing is just trying to fix yourself all the time uh, when there may be nothing inherently a problem there. I mean, there could be, but there may not be. And so the importance of asking that question, um, I think of this as sort of the difference between uh, the pursuit of health, which is I want to feel good and I want to uh, be able to do what I want to do and I want to be able to express my physical joy and, you know, I want to live well and be pain-free and that's great, physical health. This seems like a native drive for most people is to be, uh, to be to have that sort of health and vigor um, as opposed to um, standards of beauty. So, you know, that, that, that this is a whole different thing. Being healthy and well and vibrant and vital is different from um, meeting whatever your cultural standards of beauties are, beauty is at the moment, which, of course, are hugely variable. And we're seeing this now in this sort of body positive movement, which says, hey, be positive about your body, right? Be positive about who you are, even if it doesn't meet certain societal norms, um, and then the question then is, you know, then you come back and go, well, <clears throat> when does that lapse over into, uh, you know, encouraging unhealth, right? Do we want to encourage health? How do you measure health, health on the individual level? So is it that if you don't match a norm, there's something wrong with you? Or is it that, hey, as long as you're healthy and vibrant, you're good to go? Um, you know, th again, this is that sort of, it, you know, it, are, are people fundamentally healthy and therefore they just need health uh, help potentially in expressing that or are people fundamentally ill and until they really get some specific program and are meeting all these external guidelines then they're you know they're kind of hopeless and you know you can see examples of, of both in our culture so this this goes you know right through just about every aspect of our of our society where 
um, the debates that on the surface seem very different or from, you know, very different sides or discussing wildly different issues can be understand, can be understood in some ways much more clearly if we asking ourselves, do you view people as fundamentally flawed and damaged, uh, potentially irredeemably, and therefore they need this intervention of some kind to save them? Or are people fundamentally good and, you know, pretty decent and that what they, if they need anything, they just need, you know, maybe a little help, a little understanding, a little compassion. And, you know, the, the, you know maybe the lights will come on, maybe they won't, who knows, but that doesn't matter. They can still be a decent person despite the flaws. <clears throat> that, you know, whew, this is a tough one. Um, I would say right now, because of the tensions in our society, we're moving very much more towards the notion that, oh, the people who feel or do or say certain things are irredeemable. They basically become non-people. They become, oh, if you, uh, if, well, you know, it's the notion of not saying, oh, well, that person is hopelessly liberal and they're progressive and they love everybody and they're tree huggers. It's the notion that, oh, they're uh, socialist demons who are destroying the American way of life or they're libtards or, you know, it's, it's this very aggressive notion that they are just worthless people. Um, you know, then on the left, it's like, oh, well, is there a problem with race in the country? Obviously, yes. You know, um, can people be racist? Certainly they can. But then does that make a person fundamentally wrong and uh, irredeemable? And can that person then be demonized and assaulted and attacked? Like, ooh. Right. And it's, it's very clearly you get to that sort of medieval place where, ah, we find somebody we hate, uh, we, 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 we line up around them and then we stone them to death. That's a tradition of that is great. We love that. Right. But what it says is that person, for whatever reason, has been singled out as uh, irredeemable and that we can assault them and abuse them and we can be feel good about it. It's not that we go, oh, we're sorry we have to do that. No, it's our duty to do this. This is why burning people at the stake was called an auto de fe, an act of faith, right? This was a, a, a way of helping them, right? Like burning them to death, we're really helping them. Same thing with witches, right? Ooh, these witches, there's, they're a threat to our society. There's nothing that can be done to them. And basically we're helping them because, you know, they're possessed. They're so wrong that the best thing we can do is kill them. Um, and that's, you know, when you, when you take this logic to its extreme, this is where you get, get to in history is this notion of, oh, selecting out groups, pushing them aside, making them um, uh, uh, redefined as hopeless or hopelessly damaged and unsalvageable. Or, again, the flip side of that is to just get, yeah, they're flawed, they're messed up, they make mistakes, they're human just like me. Right, it, it, that that their human their their humanity is not fundamentally different from mine, and my humanity is okay. I feel pretty good about it, so I feel pretty good about them, even if we disagree about every possible thing. Right, that's the <laughs> you know that 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 sort of uh, sense of like okay, even though I think that person is wrong about everything in their life. I still think like, well, that's okay. They have the, they, 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 it's okay for them to be that way. I wish they wouldn't be that way. I wish I could convince them to be some other way. But basically, hey, it's all fine. You know, free love, everybody, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom out there in the world. Um, and so, you know, this, this, these kinds of questions is, you know, 
is it possible to be accepting like that? Or when, and when does that become a problem itself? And they say the one thing that tolerance cannot tolerate is intolerance, right? At some point, intolerance itself becomes a threat to tolerance. Like what, what do you do when you're trying to tolerate incredibly intolerant groups or positions, right? When, when does that actually have to become recognized as a danger? And again, yeah, tough to think about. Uh, but yeah, so, so as you're hearing all this rhetoric, as we live in these contentious times, I think it is good to pause and ask ourselves, you know, do we think people are sort of reasonably good and decent at their core? Or do we think they're sort of hopelessly flawed at their core? Because how you answer that question and how you think about it dramatically impacts uh, just about everything, you, you, how you respond to cultural inputs, how you understand uh, other people, how empathetic or compassionate you are towards them. Uh, it really, it's really one of those core deep uh, values. And, and basically, I think we, we vary. I don't think we tend to be purist on this. Our culture certainly isn't purist on this. Uh, it, you know, it vacillates. One is in dominance and then the other, and it, you know, it goes back and forth. But, you know, it is a fundamental uh, and deeply informing question that we can ask ourselves and also ask of other um, sort of rhetorics or arguments or positions that we see. If you, if you see a position like the, like I said, I was mentioning the one with works so of the People who are interested in modern monetary theory often promote this notion of, oh, universal jobs for everybody. It's like, hmm, okay, but what if we don't want jobs, right? But the, the core there is like the, that this would establish some sort of utopia. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but um, hmm, do people need to work to be worthwhile, to be worthy, to be valuable? And I'm like, meh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I would argue I don't think they do. But that's certainly arguable. I mean, you can make an ethical argument that, you know, that they don't provide a value to society. So why should society have anything to do with them? I mean, it's not an unreasonable position, I imagine, but it suggests that people have to earn their value. Um, and I just don't know. I think people maybe are inherently valuable. But again, arguable position. And that argument has been going on for many thousands of years. <clears throat> So just something else to ponder, another level of complexity. But I think if you uh, look down very deep uh, at its core, you'll find that this uh, notion is, is very central. Are people generally valuable? Is everybody flawed? Are only certain groups worthy of being saved or redeemed? Or are they already the chosen and the elect and everybody else is sort of third rate also rands? Or are all of us sort of worth our, our, our keep, that, that, that we are valuable just in the notion of being uh, human and being alive and having all the incredible human potential which we all possess. So there you go. Thank you very much.